The Social Impact of Influenza in Winnipeg, 1918. In my work, I'm really interested in uh, bodily politics, so the relationship between the experience of the body and social movements. A conversation with Essel Jones. I'm Sean Karaj, and you're listening to episode 20 of Nature's Past, a podcast of the Network in Canadian History and Environment. Toward the end of the Great War, Canadians were struck by the most devastating influenza pandemic in the young country's history. More than 50,000 Canadians succumbed to this virulent strain of influenza, which swept the globe in 1918 and 1919. Nearly as many Canadians died from this disease as those who were killed in combat overseas during the First World War. While the influenza epidemic of 1918-1919 has received significant scholarly attention outside of Canada, Canadian historians have only begun to examine the social consequences of this devastating event. The social history of disease and environmental history intersect because both subdisciplines take into consideration the role of non-human actors in the past. The influenza virus that spread throughout Canada in 1918-1919 placed biological and material limits on human agency during this critical period in Canada's past. While the course of the epidemic was shaped by social and political factors, the disease itself ultimately came to have significant social impact on Canadian lives. At least, this is in part what Essel Jones argues in her book, Influenza 1918, Disease, Death, and Struggle in Winnipeg. For the first time, this book explores the impact of the influenza epidemic on the social lives of Winnipeggers in the late years of the Great War and the early years of the interwar period. To find out more, I spoke with Essel Jones. Uh, My name is Essel Jones. I teach history at the uh, Department of History at the University of Manitoba. Thanks for joining us, Essel. Uh, we're here to talk about your book, Influenza 1918, Disease, Death, and Struggle in Winnipeg. And I just wanted to start uh, by asking you uh, why you chose Winnipeg for this book. Uh, that's a question I get asked <laughs> sometimes. Um, well, in, in 1918, Winnipeg was the third largest city in Canada. And I, you know, I was interested in this urban setting, and so it seemed like a good choice. Um, Winnipeg has a rich social history from that period. In fact, most of what's been written about Winnipeg covers that, you know, the period from about 1890 through the general strike in 1919. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had work to draw on that allowed me to think about questions like ethnicity and class. Um, some social geographers have also done work on, on social spaces and social interaction. Um, in my work, I'm really interested in uh, bo- bodily politics. So the relationship between the experience of the body and social movements. So um, I was also drawn to writing about Winnipeg because I wanted to see what, if any, there, relationship there was between the general strike period and the pandemic. Because, of course, people lived through both of those events basically at the same time. Did you feel like the literature on this period for Winnipeg's history had... Um ignored or not given full treatment to the impact of the uh, this disease and this pandemic? Well, there really wasn't anything on the flu pandemic in Winnipeg. Um, when I started out doing my graduate work, the, the literature on the pandemic in general in Canada was very limited. Um, so I was really, you know, I, I got to come in at a time when myself and a small group of other people were starting to work on the pandemic, but there was nothing about the pandemic in Winnipeg, so it was really an open opportunity for me. And do you feel like Winnipeg as a 
as the third largest city in Canada by 1918. Do you feel like it's um, representative of the urban experience in Canada at that time, or is there other unique qualities to this city that made it um, more interesting to study uh, in this context? Well, I think um, it does have a lot of commonalities with other with other large communities like Toronto or Montreal. But of course, it it has some significant differences. I think um, demographically, it has a much larger proportion of immigrants from Europe than do other cities in Canada in that era. Um, it, it was also a city that was at that moment basically coming to um, the tail end of a very uh, significant period of growth, whereas that's not as much a period of huge amounts of growth for other urban centers. So. At that historical moment, you're coming to the end of um, well, most of this immigration. Of course, ended before 1914, but you're mm-hmm. you're really dealing with a city that has very has all of the issues of very recently trying to accommodate a large influx of new residents, um, rather than having dealt with that in, with that influx a bit earlier. And and so the complexion of the city is is a bit different, I think, than either Toronto or Montreal. And does, did Winnipeg have a unique social geography that made it stand out from Toronto or Montreal in terms of distribution of uh, population within the city? I think like other urban centers in North America, I mean, there are, are of course, you know, non-Canadian parallels here as well, Chicago, mm-hmm. uh, Philadelphia, cities, cities like that, um, where you have, you know, you have certain ethnic enclaves. And, you know, Winnipeg had those ethnic enclaves as well. You have a very significant um, problem with wealth inequality in Winnipeg in that era where you have, you know, a small number of extremely wealthy people relative to what's going on for the majority of the population. I think those things are pretty common sort of urban social geography experiences. Um, there are, you know, there are certain ethnic groups that were represented in, in large numbers in Winnipeg, a very large Jewish community, um, but also large German and large Anglo-Canadian immigrant communities too. So um, my work doesn't cover, um, unfortunately, doesn't cover St. Boniface, which is, you know, the French-speaking mm-hmm. quarter um, of the city. Um, that's a history that, that remains to be written still. Now, your research on the pandemic in 1918-1919 directly challenges this idea that uh, the influenza pandemic was an equal opportunity killer. Can you explain how your research shows, as you say, that influenza was not democratic in its effects in the context of Winnipeg? Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of scholars are now challenging the idea that's been pretty prevalent in the literature since the 1970s and 80s that influenza killed equally across social classes. Mm -hmm. Um, So the relationship between social inequality and disease is always highly contested um, in literature, uh, in history and sociology and epidemiology even today. Um, in the early 20th century, I think public health practitioners had the idea that poverty um, and poor housing were related to ill health, made people sick. But there was also the notion that um, really the solution to this problem was not kind of a radical transformation of, of pov- eradication of poverty, but rather education, right? That poor people mm-hmm. needed to be educated in the proper habits of health. Um, so at the time, public health officials were afraid of 
poor people becoming infected with influenza as they were with any um, infectious disease. But they really didn't do anything to directly address the situation that poor people face that might have made them more vulnerable to the disease. Mm-hmm. So when I look at, at the, the data that do exist for the flu in 1918, there, um, like all other historians, I have found a lot of limitations in that data. Right. Uh, for example, I'm not really able to track directly the relationship between ethnicity and mortality. Um, death certificates are not publicly accessible in Manitoba, so I just don't have that level of analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, others, though, are, you know, depending on where you live and what, what is available to you, are able to go more deeply into this question than I've been. Really, what I'm using is a, a kind of social geography sort of approach saying, well, this was a, this were, these were districts of the city where we know, we know from the work of other people who lives there. Um, through census data and other other kinds of data. So what I found um, is really consistent with the arguments that others others have made about um, social differentials in in mortality, and I'm much less confident about morbidity, about who got sick, because the data there are really not very uh, robust. (laughs) But um, no one had prior immunity to this flu virus. So that means that people of all ages and social backgrounds get infected. Um, Mm -hmm. They do get infected. You know, there's, because there isn't prior immunity, you have kind of this this, uh, running amok sort of feel to it. Mm -hmm. But it, it doesn't appear when you look at look at the data that everybody gets sick and dies at the same rate. So in in certain districts of Winnipeg, you had working class and poor men, women, children who were more likely to die. They had higher mortality rates. Um, I don't know why this is the case exactly, but I do make certain arguments in the book um, about why I think this might have been the case. Um, for example, there were you know people who were working class people, people who had jobs, were generally earning wages that were far too low. Mm -hmm. So they really couldn't afford not to go to work. Uh, So that meant two things for them. I think they couldn't avoid becoming infected because the virus was circulating in workplaces as well as homes, obviously. Mm -hmm. And they couldn't um, stay away from work when they became infected. So they probably went to work when they were already sick, so that meant you know you couldn't um, quarantines were you know basically meaningless in that kind of context um, and their bodies were weakened by the fact that they kept going to work when they were sick so mm-hmm. a lot of people who died after being infected from influenza didn't die from the virus itself but from secondary infections so right. bronchitis and pneumonia um, and I think the way the way working people were living made it very difficult to deal with those kinds of infections. Um, there weren't really, you know, good treatments for those things um, either. But they really didn't have access to medical care. Very little access because it was expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, they probably weren't adequately fed. A lot of these families, depending on you know where they were in the wage scale, um, and there were you know there are more kind of mundane things that I talk about in the book, like, um, you know, bedding and linens, for instance. Um, you know, when, when you're sick with, well, we all know what it's like to be sick with influenza. We throw up, we, mm-hmm. you know, lose control of our bodily functions, and people are not, they're not able to cope with those. They don't have the material resources to cope with those things. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, it's winter in Winnipeg, uh, November, December, January, February, March, um, cold. Um, fuel is very expensive, um, so homes are probably not adequately heated. They were overcrowded. They were poorly ventilated. Um, so these are all kind of ideal conditions for influenza to spread, but also they're not good conditions for people to get healthy again. Um, and because flu, the flu often went through entire families at the same time, you had, you know, you you didn't have the opportunity to try to um, deal with those situations by, you know, you might, everybody might be off work or everybody might be sick. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, those are those are some of the reasons I think I think that explain the differential in the mortality. So when you talk about what it means to experience this, you know, this pandemic. I really think you do have to try to put together the pieces of what that illness experience was actually like for people beyond just saying, you know, did they go to the hospital or not? Mm -hmm. Um, Because, of course, from what we can tell, most people didn't. So, you know, you have to try to sort of figure out what it was actually like to be um, infected with the disease. And that's what I see when I I try to figure that out. Right. I was going to say... you give it the impression in this book that not only in terms of mortality was there an inequitable experience of the pandemic between different social classes in Winnipeg, uh, but in the um, in the lived experiences of individuals, uh, whether they died or whether they didn't die, that there was uh, extreme inequalities in how a person experienced influenza in 1918 and 1919. Yeah, I I think that you know I think that there was. Um, and that those that lived experience, as you put it, is is important to the story, um, and in part it's important to the story because it happened to so many people at the same time. Um, you know, you have this kind of critical mass of people who are experiencing trying to deal with this disease under circumstances that are even normally um, quite terrible. You know, without the presence of a pandemic, and then you. Then you have a situation where the way people muddle through normally can't work anymore um, mm-hmm. because you can't just muddle through um, in a scenario where you have multiple family members sick or you haven't been to work for two weeks, you haven't had any wages coming in, there's no food in the house. Um, of course, sickness and disability are always a disaster for working class people in this era anyway. Mm-hmm. There's, um, you know, the the relationship between poverty and illness is... It actually runs both ways too, right? That you have the impact of illness is so um, potentially catastrophic for working class families. Now, you make the case in the book that the de- disease itself is mediated then by these social identities and inequities within Winnipeg society at this time. But you also, from the outset, state that you you you've come to view the disease itself as a historical actor. So in what ways was influenza an actor in this history? How did the disease itself shape the narrative? Yeah, I you know, I think when I started working on this, I was really kind of a pretty sort of dyed in the wool social historian of medicine. Um and I still I still argue in my mind all the time with the the issue of biology, you know, mm-hmm. the issue of, you know, what is uh what is biological, how determined are we by that, and so on. Um, 
I think social historians of medicine over the last number of decades have done a really good job of showing how health and illness are socially constructed. So our, our mm-hmm. perceptions of a disease help us to actually define the disease. They shape our social responses to it. And, um, you know, as I say, I, as you say, I, I use those kinds of arguments in my work as well because I think mm-hmm. they are really important. But for me, after, you know, having worked through the research, disease is also a bodily experience. Mm-hmm. So people live through this disease. You know, they suffer, they get better, they don't get better. Um, the work that they do to help other people survive affects them. And, they, you know, people experience death, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It's there's no, <laughs> there's no, I mean, there is, of course, cultural framing for death, but death is death. Mm-hmm. Um, and this virus kills people. So, you know, even though the way the pandemic took shape was really shaped by um, certain social realities uh, in a number, uh, you know, lots of different ways, perceptions, but also public health responses themselves, mm-hmm. it had a particular kind of impact on people's bodies. So, you know, at, at a very basic level, it has certain symptoms, it has certain bodily implications, but it, its epidemiological pattern is also specific. It kills adults in the prime of life as opposed to young and old people. Um, it was a it was a pandemic, not a more narrow, confined experience. So, it affects um, large numbers of people with a, with an, a more or less identical sort of experience at the same moment at the same time. Um, and that distinguishes it from other kinds of diseases in the 20th century. Um, you know, this kind of pandemic event is actually quite rare in in history at at, at this scale. So, you know, because I'm interested in the way body experience and ideas of human solidarity intersect, um, mm-hmm. I I need to look at the disease itself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I it's I don't want to kind of overdraw that. Um, sure. You know, because people like Charles Rosenberg, who's, you know, major scholar in the history of medicine, you know, I, to make a simple kind of encapsulation of his argument, he talks about epidemics revealing, you know, societies, sort of exposing them for what they really are. Hmm. Um, but at the end of the day, I felt that influenza was more than that. It wasn't just revealing what the society is, it does that. It exposes things, but it also creates things. Um, you know, it's. Uh, I gave a talk last year where I was sort of apologizing for the notion of a pandemic being a creative, you know, a creative moment when things are created that are positive. Mm-hmm. Um, but I actually think that there is always that potential in a in a pandemic that you have a transformative potential that. The disease creates um, that people create through having experienced the disease. So, you know, because we're living and acting in and through bodies, you know, if we can think that our bodies are real, not social abstractions, whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever we might, uh, however comfortable we are, you know, along a continuum with that, mm-hmm. then disease is in some way real as well. And is this an acknowledgement that um, the virus itself has behaviors that then interact with human social behaviors? Yeah. I mean, the, the 
what I don't really um, I don't really talk about in my work, although other people do, is the notion of the virus in relation to the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's not something that that I'm especially interested in. But I am interested in the way that the way that the virus sort of works its way through a community, mm-hmm. um, and you know who it who it affects and who it doesn't affect and how it affects people's bodies also affects how they relate to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and because I think there's a lot of variability too in that, in that, so it isn't determined by the virus. But the, you know, in the absence of the virus, um, what are you know what are we talking about exactly? So, um, I th- I think there's a a kind of um, relationship between the virus and the human response to it. Yeah. I was thinking about, um, when I was preparing for this, I was thinking about other examples where um, we might think about a virus or another kind of disease actually impacting, especially impacting notions of social solidarity or social equality. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, one one disease I think should be thought about this way as well is HIV AIDS. Right. Um, especially in the context of, um, say, North American social politics, where, you know, the disease, of course, reflected back to our society the impact of certain kinds of social inequalities or discrimination or um, certain kinds of social realities. But it also, you know, the disease itself, AIDS itself, transformed um, gay activism. In some cases, it transformed the broader left. Um, and in absence of a- HIV, perhaps those changes would have occurred. But there's a particular kind of um, relationship there where the disease plays a role in um, spurring a certain kind of social solidarity that was, you know, that changed over mm-hmm. over the course of really trying to get a way of uh, dealing with HIV. Well, I guess that that gets to my next question. As a Canadian historian, picking up a book about Winnipeg uh, with 1919 on the or 1918 on the cover uh, raises questions about the general strike. Uh, and I guess, in a, in a certain sense, it's the big question that stands out uh, in this narrative. Did you find evidence of connections between the influenza pandemic and the general strike in 1919? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't argue in my work that there is an easy line drawn or a direct relationship. Mm-hmm. My starting point is, um, first of all, my objection to the total absence of any discussion of the pandemic in labor history. Um, because this, to me, marginalizes the bodily experience of people, the pe- very same people, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there was a, in the midst of the flu pandemic, after the first um, first public health measures to restrict public gatherings, there was a general strike vote right. that was taken, you know, take, took place right at the very beginning in October. Um, so these are events that are you know, you might quibble with the exact dates, but they are more or less simultaneous events. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not easy to decipher what the pandemic means. And, um, you know, so I, I, I draw on cultural theory, Marxist theory, to try to talk about what the possibilities might be here. Um, 
you know, people like Rebecca Salmet, for instance, who writes about epidemics and disasters, and the, again, this kind of this possibility of creativity. And I, I would say I, I see a relationship in in kind of um, two ways. For one thing, the pandemic intensifies the need for mutual aid and support. Mm-hmm. And you know, the new newer historiography of the general strike moves away from just talking about unions toward talking about the about community activism, right? About the notion of of the general strike on the street in the lives of of people, as opposed to just talking about the you know the metal council or metal workers council or whatever. So mm-hmm. um, that's you know I try to link my my work with that kind of work that talks about what people are doing at the family and community level, and there it seems to me that the pandemic has already strengthened these bonds of reliance and support because they are. Those bonds are the things that got many people through the pandemic, whether they are formal or informal. At the same time, I think um, the pandemic does intensify a certain kind of sense of injustice because, you know, people at the time realize what's going on in in their communities, and there's also, you know, specific instances of of injustice in public health responses. One of these is. Um, when the city closes down public gatherings, it closes down all the you know movie theaters and music halls uh, and so on. Right. Uh, and this puts several hundred men out of work. And you know at that time, the cultural um, institutions uh, had quite strong unions. So there were musicians' unions and so on. And they were quite vocal about talking about the unfair impact of this layoff, which lasted. Um, over six weeks, right? Because the mm-hmm. public meeting ban was quite long, and these workers were not receiving any wage compensation, despite um, months of demands for compensation that ended didn't end when the pandemic ended. They kept on trying to get um, compensation for men into the spring of 1919. So that's one thing. I mean, some of these families, I have, you know, letters from a family um, that's in this situation from the wife who's, you know has no money for fuel, has no money to feed her children, and so on. So the the implications are really um, fairly severe for those workers. Uh, and this is something that the labor movement is talking about at the time. The other thing I talk about in my book is the anger over um, burial costs. Um, right. Because there were quite a number of families, over 100, I think if I remember, about 120 or so families who had to have paupers burials during the flu pandemic, which meant, you know, basically you got put in a box and you you got taken out to the public cemetery. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, burial with ritual and with dignity was a very big deal in working class communities in this era. it was something that they worked hard, uh, you know, losing that that dignity was something they worked quite hard to prevent. And, you know, they bought insurance for death and so on. Um, so when this happens, there's a lot of outrage about it um, among labor circles. There was a public inquiry, which was, um, which was done largely because um, labor for the first time in December of 1918 in the civic election that was held between the two waves of, of the pandemic had won 50% of the of city council. So they had some key members on city council who pushed for a public inquiry um, and tried to keep this issue of the unfairness of funeral prices, which they saw as predatory, basically, in the public eye. Um, 
so there were there were these flashpoints during the pandemic where organized labor was mobilized to fight various implications of public health policy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Maureen Lux has called the the pandemic the midwife of of the, the general strike movement in Canada. I was I also think of it as a kind of trial run, right? mm. uh, trial run for issues of mutual support and solidarity. Um, these are people who were at that moment very familiar with the need for mutual reliance in a situation of crisis, basically. And you think these skills then were translated months later during the course of the general strike? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, there was a spring wave of, of the pandemic, right, that started mm-hmm. in it started in early March. Um, and, and, you know, even though we think of it in waves and, you know, it is a wave of sorts, the disease never leaves the city at all, really. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are cases even in January and February, people die then too, so... All through that winter, basically, people are either living through disease or living with the repercussions of the loss of family members and so on. Um, And I, you know, it's very, partly it's difficult to pinpoint because this is the history of people who left, you know, it's a classic problem in social history, people people whose lives were lived without having left a record. Mm -hmm. Um, but that my my sense is that you know that those bonds were um, well they were um, they were being used they were in play um, before the before the strike itself. Do you feel um, from the research that you did in the context of Winnipeg? Do you feel that this health emergency uh, disrupted uh, lines of gender or class or ethnicity uh, in the city during this period? Um. At the time of the epidemic, yes. Over the longer term, I would say, you know, ultimately no, especially for class and gender boundaries. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll go back. Maybe I'll go back to that in a second. But you know, one of the one of the things that I wish my work had been able to do a better job of is tracing the relationship of um, different kinds of immigrants in the North End mm. of the city, in particular, in other districts of the city. Um, because ethnicity, the bound, the boundaries of ethnicity, it's harder to say whether or not the pandemic had um, a deep impact on overturning those. Um, I think part, you know, in part, you think, well, a pandemic is always temporary, and so looking for very immediate, concrete implications for those sorts of realities is hard. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I do. I do think it's worth looking more into what sorts of social relationships were formed between people across ethnic boundaries in districts of the city where people lived very closely together. I mean, you know, the the north end of the city was a polyglot district anyway. You had many nationalities living as neighbors with one another, mm-hmm. um, and I do think that healthcare was one place where ethnic boundaries were crossed in general anyway because you know people there were a lot of Jewish doctors who practiced in the north end people people visited them there were midwives um, from Europe who were probably helping women from a variety of ethnicities give birth there were you know, sort of wise women and popular healers um, and I suspect that if the research were done you would find a lot of contact across those boundaries um, 
But in the case of the pandemic, I only have a few sort of little slivers of, of insight into that that suggest that there, the boundaries of ethnicities, ethnicity were a bit more permeable, maybe, mm. than under normal conditions of life. Mm. Um, as far as class and, and class goes, uh, I think had, um, had public health authorities responded differently to the pandemic, um, you know, I talk in my work about the fact that labor was not involved in any way in preparing the response um, right. to influenza. Which you say is very different from the case in Vancouver. Yes, there were there were other cities in North America where labor councils were invited uh, to the table. Um, and that, you know, in a place like Winnipeg, that was almost, you know, it was basically unimaginable for that. <laughs> To have occurred at that at that moment, um, mm-hmm. you know, relationships between the city itself, the city government, and organized labor uh, were poor, uh, very poor at that time. So, you know, it, it was an opportunity to have some cooperation and you know a, a moment of working together that that didn't materialize. But there were also ways that. Um, you know, things like laying off the workers and not giving them wage compensation mm-hmm. that, you know, actually, you know, rather than a missed opportunity, they were actually creating flashpoints. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, so these were, though, in those cases, this is kind of, you know, sort of reifying class boundaries rather than breaking them down. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, I think there's, uh, there's a hardening, um, when it comes to comes to women's volunteerism, which I talk about in the book, I think mm-hmm. there, I think there was a there an opportunity for women to cross um, to develop empathy in relationships across boundaries of class and ethnicity. Um, and I, you know, women's volunteer relief was a really important thing during the pandemic, where. That you know they delivered food and um, nursing care to thousands of families, and this was a relief effort that was largely run by middle class and some sort of bourgeois wealthy women, but mostly middle class reform type women. Right. Um, and you know it was it was a highly organized um, affair, uh, which minimizes at that you know at the upper level minimizes the opportunity for much to be anything other than what it normally is. And uh, they were written about in a certain way in the media as well. So that there's at that level, there's a one reality, but it's a different reality if you're a woman. I think who's actually going out into somebody's home and providing that kind of care. Mm-hmm. And you know, they again, the you know, the evidence is. I think that there is more work to be done on that issue. But I, I think there is evidence that for some women, this was. Well, for one thing, it's it's emotionally disruptive, right? These are mm-hmm. there are a lot of stories about women spending days um, trying to save somebody's life, you know, um, or you know, spending all of this time and then you know the person the person dies, and mm-hmm. being there with a family as they're going through this experience. And I don't think it was necessarily easy for women to. Um, carry around the same worldview that they had before um, after having gone through an experience like that. And, you know, other other scholars who have written about 
women's um, philanthropic work have suggested similar sorts of things that um, even though these are women who have a they at the end of the day they have a lot of difficulty leaving this, the boundaries leaving the space of their of their class and social position but at the same time they do develop human relationships with the people that they are involved with um, and I think it was the same for volunteer women during the pandemic, that they often had very intense emotional connection with the people that they were spending time with. Sometimes this overflowed in, into, you know, I, there's a letter to the newspaper that one volunteer woman wrote, which was out, you know, expressing all of this outrage that her uh, fellow, um, you know, wealthy, the wives and daughters of wealthy men were not doing more to help people. And the tone of the letter really suggested to me that this was somebody who was kind of deeply emotionally involved in, in this. Um, and a lot of women did this sort of work at great personal risk. That's, mm-hmm. you know, the other thing that has to be remembered. I mean, there were half a dozen or more of these women volunteers who died. Um, and they may have, you know, of course, the flu was spreading everywhere and they may have contracted it elsewhere or whatever, but they're, you know, they're doing work that takes them out of their normal comfort zone for certain, right? Mm-hmm. The way epidemics and disasters always do anyway, uh, take people out of life as the ordinary and put them in a different space. Um, I think when it comes to the media coverage, of course, this is all very carefully sort of packaged in in the media as a kind of feminine heroism. And to me, that packaging itself speaks to something, you know. um, It takes a lot of what Mary Poovey has referred to as ideological work, Mm. um, you know, the constant ideological work of gender to make the pandemic response into these heroic, you know, privileged women saving um, the helpless poor takes work. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, as Puvi would point out, where that work is going on on the surface, where we can see it, it means that there's something going on underneath that is threatening. Um, And that's how I read the potential for empathy um, between women across these social boundaries. Um, You know, and again, it's an immediate impact for that is difficult to identify. so you know it's it's very it's very difficult to say well this led women to you know make certain you know take certain steps in a certain direction, and um, this is always always having to deal with you know the fact that the pandemic is a short-lived reality mm-hmm. um, that doesn't necessarily you know immediately transform things in a, in a bigger way, um, but at the same time you don't want to ignore. Um, those sorts of spaces that it creates um, as well. Your research on this topic is unique in the sense, too, that you push beyond the uh, the short period of the pandemic itself to consider its longer uh, impacts on Winnipeggers after uh, the pandemic. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about um, the ways in which the experiences of men and women differed uh, with coping with the long-term effects of, of the, uh, the epidemic? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, I try to talk about families um, toward the end of the book and family experiences. And um, because of, of the, the, the epidemiological reality of the flu, which killed the majority of people who died were between the ages of 20 and 50, 20 mm-hmm. and 60. 
um, you know, it had a major impact on family life. So people lost spouses, children lost parents, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I try to look at what it was like for families to try to put themselves back together after a loss like that. Um, and I, I've, I'm still working on this in a slightly different case study right now, writing about connections between um, spiritual practices and grief in the family. Um, in my book, I try to talk about um, kind of the ec- different economic realities and family realities for men and women. Women were women were highly economically disadvantaged if they lost a spouse. Like like all widows, they found a very difficult time um, trying to get by. So I I talk about the importance of social programs like the Mother's Allowance Program. So the Mother's Allowance was created um, in Manitoba in 1916. So it it provided support for widows um, as long as their husbands were naturalized British subjects. So it excluded a lot of poor immigrant women. So those women who had lost their husbands during the pandemic lived in quite severe um, poverty. Um, for eligible women, the Mother's Allowance though helped them to keep their um, families together, basically to keep their children. Uh, certainly, it wasn't you know it wasn't a great existence. Um, these women had very minimal budgets that they had to live within that were set by the department. They were constantly supervised by social workers, um, criticized if if you know their housekeeping standards weren't considered good enough, and so on. Mm-hmm. But without the mother's allowance, these women would have lost their family unit entirely um, as women who, many of whom had not worked much outside of marriage. And, you know, this is a time when women's wages are quite low in any case. And, you know, some of them had several family uh, family members to support. So, you know, the they experienced, I think, a pretty dramatic downward um uh, movement in their standard of living and their quality of life, uh, but on the plus side, they were able to keep their children with them. Um, so I think this really plays a role, and, and certainly an understudied role, in um, pushes uh, a, a movement for the enlargement of social welfare rights. Uh, I would I would be surprised if there's any province in Canada where the budgets of widows' pensions, such as they existed, and they did exist in several provinces by, you know, the late 19-teens, where their budgets weren't significantly enlarged by the pandemic. So some of this, some of these programs experienced a retrenchment in the 1920s and 30s especially, Mm -hmm. but, you know, the budgets of these programs had to go up. And these were women who, you know, really had strong moral claim on those allowances because they weren't poor because of any failing of their own or from any failing on their husband's part. They Mm -hmm. were poor because of, you know, an accident of fate that their husbands had died. Uh, So they had claims that were really legitimate and hard, I think, to refute. And so kind of just by almost by a sort of historical accident, the budgets of these programs are forced to um, increase quite dramatically. And did you find um, this was an aspect of these programs that historians hadn't looked at yet? Well, I'd never, when I discovered it, I was quite shocked um, because uh, I was not aware of it. Um, what I found, I mean, that there's a lot of really, you know, great work on Mother's Allowance programs, and and it, it you know, really contributes to our understandings of how these shape gender roles and 
um, and how they did provide a certain kind of model of family. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there isn't often a lot of attention in that work paid to how um, people became widowed. And when I looked at the statistics with these with the program in Manitoba, the vast majority of these women were on mother's allowance because their husbands had died from diseases like tuberculosis mm-hmm. um, and and other you know sort of preventable diseases basically right mm-hmm. and after the flu pandemic over over a hundred families on the mother's allowance because their uh, partners had died from influenza so I think looking at the causes of you know why these women are are on mother's allowance slightly changes our perception of the program, um, or at least the evolution of, of the program, if I can if I can put it that way. Well, this is a book that I think uh, has a lot of crossover appeal to um, those who may be interested in aspects of environmental history and those who are interested in the social history of medicine. Um, I want to thank you for telling us a little bit more about the book, Essel, and uh, for listeners who are interested in picking up a copy. The title is Influenza 1918, Disease, Death, and Struggle in Winnipeg. Thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot. Nature's Past is produced with support from the Network in Canadian History and Environment. This episode was made by Essel Jones and me, Sean Karash. Music for Nature's Past was licensed by Creative Commons. For details on the artists, please take a look at our show notes at niche-canada.org slash naturespast, where you can also download new episodes, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, and leave comments. Please let us know what you think about the podcast. And don't forget to rate this podcast and write a short review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash naturespast. If you have ideas for new episodes or you want to send me some feedback, you can contact me through my website at seancourage.com. You can always get the latest information on events in the environmental history community from the Niche website at niche-canada.org, and you can find out more about the topics we discussed on this episode on our show notes page. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next month with another episode of Nature's Past.